0: You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au My name is Jimmy Young and it's my great pleasure to open God's Word with you and share from the book of 1 Samuel. And there's one big question overarching today and that is, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? The Book of One Samuel, when we open it up, often feels a bit foreign to us. It's a story full of kings and prophets and kingdoms and betrayal. It feels like a tale from the Book of like Arthur and the the Knights of the Round Table than modern day Melbourne. But when it boils down to it, Samuel and particularly one Samuel chapter eight is a story of identity. It's a story of them trying to work out who are we? It's my question again, do you know who you are? See, chapter 8 in 1 Samuel presents a bit of a problem for the nation of Israel. Samuel is old, and Samuel's sons are not very good. So we read this, that when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Israel has a problem. Samuel, the judge of Israel, has become old. He has done lots of judging, and he's come almost to the end of his time. He's appointed his sons, but they are not good. It's actually the first time that there's any kind of hereditary leadership operating in Israel. And the the leaders of Israel can see where this is going. Samuel was good, but his sons were not. We need a change. And so they introduce something into the equation. They ask Samuel to appoint a king. It says in 1 Samuel 8, 4-5 that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old. And your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us a king to govern us like other nations. It's interesting that the Bible's actually not anti-kings. I thought it was. I thought the big problem with this request was that they asked for a king when God had already given them judges. But actually, from the very beginning, God has instituted kings for Israel. So in the book of Genesis, it anticipates that great kings will come from Israel. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, there's literally instructions for how to appoint a king. In the book of Judges, literally books before 1 Samuel, it ends saying there is no king in the land of Israel. And so everyone does what is right in their own sight. The Bible is anticipating that there will be this very request. It's anticipating that there will be a king in Israel. It's anticipating that this is the moment that Israel has been waiting for. This great king, this line of kings will come now. And yet, Samuel's response and God's response is quite vivid. Samuel says uh, this on the next slide when it moves over. Here we go. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. In the original languages, it's a bit more stronger language than displeased. It's that Samuel saw it as evil. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This is quite a vivid response. See, it's not the asking for a king that's the issue, it's the motivation behind the asking. See, they don't just want a king so that they would have good governance. They don't want a king just so that they could be well looked after. They want a king like the other nations. Like the other nations. Nations. In fact, this line is repeated again in verse 20, which Sam read out in our kids' talk in far starker language, so that we might be like the other nations. Israel wants to be like everybody else. And that's why Samuel responds the way he does, that's why God responds the way he does. See, one of the most consistent refrains in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Leviticus, as Israel is working out how to relate to this God who is holy, is that God tells them, be holy as I am holy. Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy for I am holy. Now we have quite a, a narrow view of holiness. We tend to think that being holy is being pure or being morally right or being righteous. But it's far broader than that. Being holy means being distinct or set apart. Being holy means being different from those around you because the Lord is our God. Just as He is holy and set apart, we are to be like Him. And particularly for Israel, that meant to be distinct and set apart from all the other nations. They had a missionary identity that they would be different than the nations so that they could reveal God to the nations. And now they want to be like everybody else. Now Israel wants to just be like every other nation around them. See, this isn't just a political restructuring. This isn't a rejection of their God-given identity. This is Eden all over again. This is a breakup. This is Israel saying, we're going to do our own thing, God. Thank you for giving us an identity. We're going to work it out from here. We're going to forge our own path. We're going to work out who we are. We just need a little bit of space. See, suddenly, it's quite a modern story. See, I tend to think that the modern project of identity, of trying to work out who we are, is a do-it-yourself project. We are all trying to find out who we are largely outside of the structures that have given us identity, outside of our families, outside of our churches. It's been a do-it-yourself project. And as one leading theologian and cultural commentator, Taylor Swift, once said, I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Totally up to up to you. This slogan of discovering yourself has been repeated throughout our culture time and time again, whether it's through books like Eat, Pray, Love, one woman's incredible discovery that by escaping every responsibility, you can enjoy life a bit more. By the constant call to discover yourself like you are just some kind of unplotted location on a map somewhere, or my personal favorite. Life is about the journey, not the destination. You can find this on Google, on Instagram, just about everywhere you look. Life is about the journey, not the destination. See, I like this one, and I think it particularly resonates because who actually feels like they've arrived? Whoever feels like they've arrived. I tend to think that most of us have a vague sense that we don't quite measure up. That despite our best efforts, all our trying, all our hard work, that we're slightly inadequate. That our work is inadequate, that our homes are inadequate, that our tastes are inadequate, that our loves are inadequate. And so we constantly redefine, rediscover, research, re-express and keep searching for our true selves until we die. Sounds exhausting because it is. I think one of the reasons that so many of us are experiencing burnout in our modern culture is that we constantly have an identity that is up for grabs, constantly having to be re exerted, constantly having to be re examined. And that's one of the best things about being a Christian, because our identity is not achieved, it's received. It's not achieved by our good work. It's not achieved by our talent or intellect or smarts or wits or whatever we might like to imagine. It has been given to us by God. It means that we have a stable, firm ground beneath our feet. You know, I think the Heidelberg Catechism says it best. It says it like this What is your only comfort in life, in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Who am I? I'm not my own. Who are you? I'm with Jesus. Who are you? I, I don't have to work that out. I have an identity that's been given to me, to me by my faithful Savior. Who are you? Well, I'm adopted in Jesus. I'm adopted in Christ. I'm part of God's family. I'm loved in Him. I'm part of a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What did you do to do that? What did you do to achieve that? I did nothing. I mostly stuffed up my life, but someone told me about Jesus, and I trusted Him. And the cruel twist about the modern chase for identity is that anything else in the place of God, will eat you alive anything else that we place in the place of God will make us slaves that's what Israel discovers they reject the identity that is given to them by God to be God's special people a possession for himself that he would be their God and they would be his people and so God says to Samuel warn them what might happen he says to Samuel, listen to their voice, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so Samuel tells them, this will be the way of the king. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers he will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work he will take one tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves and in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the lord will not answer you in that day Samuel warns them what will happen when the king comes? Take, take, take. That's what kings do. Samuel warns them six times that the king will take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take your grain. He will take your livestock. He will take your land. He will take until what is really left. You will end up as a slave. That's what kings do. That's what happens. And the worst part of the warning is the very last line, the Lord will not answer you in that day. I've often had people say to me that God uh, curses a nation or curses people by sending natural disasters or sickness I'm, I'm not very sure about that at all but I am quite sure that when God curses someone the very worst thing that he could do just about is to hand them over to the desires of their own heart that when God says okay This is what you want, here you go. That is just about the very worst thing that could happen. They don't want to be God's people anymore. They don't want God as king. And God says, okay. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel warns them, the king will take, do nothing but take. And what do they say? The people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we are determined to have a king over us. This is not just a desire now, this is a conviction. So that we may be like the other nations, that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. Make no mistakes. This is an explicit rejection of God. This is not just a political restructuring or a geopolitical issue. This is Israel saying, we don't want you. We want a king to replace you. We want a man to replace you. We want a king to, gover, uh, we want a king to govern us like you used to. We want a king to go out and fight our battles like the Lord used to do. We don't want you. Israel doesn't want And what does they say? When Samuel heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Let's see if we can get to the next slide. Listen to their voice, set a king over them, and then Samuel then said to the people of Israel, Each of you return home. The story ends abruptly. Israel demands a king, says, We want a king, we don't want you, God, anymore. And the question on the lips of anyone reading would be well, who's going to be the king? Who's going to be the king? Who's going to replace God? Who's going to be the one? We find that out next chapter, but for the moment, there's silence. There's no answer. But it's a question worth asking, isn't it? Who is going to be the king? Because there is a king worth having. It's not the request for a king that was the problem for Israel. It was the request that they wanted to be like the other nations. They didn't want to be God's people anymore. There is a king worth having. And it's not the kingdom of Saul that we'll find out in chapter 9. It's not the kingdom of David later on. It is the king of kings. Jesus. It's not surprising that when Samuel says all that kings do is take, that when Jesus announces himself as the Messiah, one of the things that he says, whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The king will take, but the king of kings will give his life. The king will split up families, but the king of kings will adopt many into his family and make them brothers and sisters. The king will demand your very best, your grain, your land, your riches, but the king of kings will give you the very riches of heaven. The king will make you a slave For the king of kings will set you free. And the real question for each of us in our hearts is, who is your king? Is Jesus the king of kings who gave his life as a ransom for many? Is he the king of your life? Or have you replaced him with something else? Have you replaced him with another identity? Have you chased after something else? Have you been like Israel said, no God, I don't want to be your special people. I want to do my own thing. Because the warning from the book of 1 Samuel is clear. Anything in God's rightful place will eat you alive. Anything in God's rightful place will make you a slave. Who is your king. Now as I was writing this, I had a very clear picture of three different groups and how this plays out. Particularly, I was thinking of our young people. I used to be young three years ago. (laughs) So I know what it's like. This is right about the point in the sermon where you have tuned out. We're 42 minutes into the service, so you're like, well, that's a, I've done a good effort. Tune back in for two minutes. I tend to think that the greatest battle for you is that everything around you is convincing you to work out who you are, to discover who you are, to, to branch out on your own, to break free. Every YouTuber, TikToker, Instagram influencer, is telling you to discover yourself, but that it definitely can't be discovered in a place like here. In fact, here, in Jesus, will feel not only irrelevant, but an opposition to who you feel like you're truly becoming. But you are faced with the very same choice as Israel. Will I be God's people, or will I choose a freedom that actually ends up being slavery? careful watch out every time you watch a reel or a tiktok or something on youtube what they are actually offering you because it looks like freedom but it might very well be slavery and then there are those among us who are not so young anymore the formerly young i understand i that's me I now work six days a week. I have a young family, two kids under three. And I'm trying to offset the, my advancing years. I know, I, know I, feel, I feel much older than I actually am. The greatest battle for me is to not believe the lie that I am defined by what I do that I'm not defined by what I experience, that I'm not defined by what I feel. That in this season where there's so much work, either at work or at home, that I am what I do. And I wonder if there's others in that boat too. of feeling like your work defines you, that your output defines you, that what other people say about you defines you, that what has happened to you defines you. And that what we need to hear more than anything else is that you are not your own. You belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. I visited a friend's workplace a couple of months ago. And it, it broke me because on a little slip of paper underneath his computer screen, he just had a line that said, You are not your work. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus as a reminder that he is not what he does. Who else needs to hear that? You are not your work. You are not what you feel. You are not your experiences. You belong to Jesus, body and soul. You don't need to achieve an identity before the throne of grace. You have been given one, by a loving, faithful saviour. And then there are our faithful veterans. My experiences in churches, ever since I became a Christian at the age of 13, is that the oldest among us and the youngest among us are routinely separated and divided. The oldies, they go to their traditional prayer book services. I always went to a young adult service growing up. So I never had much time with those who've been following Jesus for a significant portion of time. And what I've experienced and come to understand is that that was to my great deficit as a Christian. I have missed out on something because we desperately need you to show us what it looks like to place your faith in Jesus and your identity in Him over the long haul. We need our faithful veterans, those who have been following Jesus over the many seasons to remind us that we are not our own. You have the role in a church of being a Barnabas type figure. Barnabas means son of encouragement, to be an encouraging person in the lives of those around us who are in the thick of the battle of trying to work out who they are. You've moved past that and you can just remind them. You belong to Jesus. You are not your own. You belong to Him. You have a faithful Savior. Let me tell you, there are people in our congregation right now who are dying for someone to say that to them. Will you be that person? Will you be an encourager? Will you risk saying the awkward thing and simply say, you are not your own. You belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. Friends, let us heed the warning of 1 Samuel. Let us not strike out on our own and reject God's kingly rule over us, but as his people, would we trust him? Trust him to be our judge. Trust him to be our king. Trust him to be our saviour. Let me pray. God, you are the king. You are the king. And so would you reveal right now all the places of our lives in which we have not submitted to your kingly authority. All the ways in which we're chasing after the kind of freedom that Israel chased after and instead got slavery. God, reveal it to us, not just so that we could feel sorrow, but so we could be led back to your loving, tender care. God, lead us back to you this morning. Reveal in us all the ways in which you are not king, so that your loving leadership may be over the whole of our lives. Help us trust you. Help us remember that we are not our own, but belong to you. And let us be your people, working this out together, encouraging each other, and placing our whole lives in your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.